I think hospitality, that's that's what we're going to get back again. Because we all want to cook. The waiters want to serve. They want to give hospitality. And I think people want it. So I think hopefully that all connects again. And it's not just somewhere you go for food and you don't embrace it, you know? This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. When it comes to Christmas and the festive season, pork is front of mind for many. Whether it's a glazed ham on the bone, roast pork, or a bacon sandwich the morning after the night before, pork has become a key to celebrating life during the festive season. And who better to talk about pork this Christmas than Mr Pork himself, Colin Fasnich? Well, Colin, it is the festive season, and you're one that likes a bit of a party. How are you feeling? <laughs> that, that, what, what an intro, hey? Um, I, 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 I have mellowed a lot over the years. Um, I've done my fair share, though. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I think this is this is a special. I reckon this year is a special year. Like the last, you know, we've had two years of pain and uh, not being able to celebrate and, and meet people and touch people. And and now I think we're coming into a Christmas where all that's allowed, which is, is amazing. Well, tell us about this period of time for the industry. Um, what, what's it feel like when you work in the industry at this time of year? It is. I, I, I wouldn't say we're all uh, singing carols and all that. It's actually, it's like two months of, it's, it's two months of pain, like proper pain. And the light at the end of the tunnel is, is probably Christmas Day, and most chefs will be asleep. Um, I just like I'm I'm not as hardcore as I was years ago. Like four in hand was once we finished Melbourne Cup, it was just on for young and old till like New Year's Eve, um, and that was just like just working around the clock, full restaurants, lunch and dinner, full pubs. Um, but it was just a great it's great time to be to be a chef. Like it it doesn't stop. But you're just tired, you know what I mean? But it's great that just people are on are, are the happiest. Everyone loves the food. It's just a great time to be in restaurants. Like that's it's sort of why you become a chef. Christmas Day, a lot of lot of industry professionals work on that day, so consumers can eat in restaurants on Christmas Day. Do you have any experiences of that? Uh, no, <laughs> I always <laughs> I always rostered myself off and. Um, I think maybe once I, I actually did when I worked for Raymond Blanc and um, yeah, it, it's not like, you know what I mean? you got to feel for these people, but you know what? The, nowadays they're earning a ton of cash to work Christmas day. Well, when we did it, we, we just, we did it for the love. Um, it's not some, now I've got children. It's not something I would do. You mentioned how busy this period of time is for the industry. Do, have you changed your menus to, to, to sort of cope with the sort of Christmas parties and, and that sort of festiveness of the season? Oh, I think, I think well, now because I've just got pubs and whatever, but, like, you know what I mean, we've, we've heaps of functions. We sort of stick along the lines of, you know, the whole suckling pig or the porchetta for 10. The way we sort of do the functions is now sort of a few showstoppers. So everyone remembers going to a, a function and they had a fillet. Well, they don't. This is the problem. They don't remember going for a fillet steak and, and some potatoes, right? But when they come to us, they have the whole suckling pig or the porchetta. And now we do the whole cauliflowers, whole pumpkins as sides. So you sort of dishes where they're like, what did you have for Christmas? They're like, wow, you won't believe what we had, right? We had this whole pig and a whole pumpkin. And they'll remember that. So we sort of took that away from four and hand days. And it's so easy for a function as well. 
I want to jump into how what it takes to you know cook a whole um, suckling pig and a porchetta and stuff. But what was Christmas like for you as a young Colin Fasnich? Uh, well, it depends. There was two stages. There was the uh, Colin, there was the Colin Fasnich when he was an altar boy, <laughs> and uh, and 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 was looked angelic before he was he was changed. And I was yeah. So Christmas, I was on I was on the altar, like holding the cross and and. You know, butter wouldn't melt in my mouth. And then there was there was Christmas as a as a commie chef, where I was led astray by all the chefs, and that's probably you know where I am today. But it was always a time of uh, busy. Like it, when I was a kid, it was people around your house. Like our house was full of relatives, and it was it was just all about food. It's probably where my love of cooking came. And then as a young chef, it was all about like head down and just you know push on with the boys. And um, so it's always been busy. What sort of feasts did you have at Christmas as a kid? Oh man, in Ireland, like everyone has turkey and ham, like the ham. But the problem was, me and my brother, when we got to an, an age of drinking where we were allowed, even when we weren't allowed, um, my my mother would like start to glaze the ham on Christmas Eve. So you know, we would come home from the pub like a bit loose, and we would eat half the ham that night. So the next day, like there's like a an uproar in the morning your mother's like where's half the ham so and then everyone had turkey like every house in Ireland had turkey like it was about the same size as my sister the, the turkey you couldn't even get it in the oven and every house you went to for a week after had this dry this dry half a bird sitting on a table you're just like nah I'm, I'm good man I've had enough turkey so it was <laughs> it was all about turkey and I think ham ham's a standout in Ireland and then you had your 50,000 types of potatoes. So we were all carved up on protein, but we were good. It's a, it's a little bit colder in Ireland at Christmas time. What, what were your um, thoughts on your first Christmas in Australia? Was it was it quite different for you? Well, as, as a, a, a red-blooded male, to see bikini women in bikinis on Christmas Day rather than your auntie in four overcoats was quite uh, revealing to me. Uh, so just to see some flesh, it was it was amazing as a white, pasty, blue Irish guy who'd come from working in Raymond Bronx kitchens for um, three years. I I loved it, and I just loved the whole prawns and the beach thing and, and the fish thing because that that would not fly in Ireland. You know what I mean? My dad would my dad would be up in arms about that. What led to the move to Australia for you? Uh, well. Uh, number one, I was tired of working in dark, dingy kitchens in England, in the cold and sitting on the tube, going, there has to be more to life than this. And then my good friend, just Justin North, said, there's a, come over, there's a job in this joint called Bank. And I said, well, I'm, I, have, I haven't got much experience in counting money. He goes, not that sort of bank. It's a different bank. It's, it's run by a crazy Irish guy. And it's a restaurant in Martin Place. And it was just that sort of, you know, English or Anglo food. That and it got three hats, so I, I ended up coming. And the Olympics was just coming up, so we're talking about like who's cooking your food. We were all Im- immigrants in that kitchen, basically, and we got our visas, our, our our residency, mate, within within a month. And then sponsorship was six months after that. Like our sponsorship, I got within a month, and then my citizenship was just two years after that. We were in easy. How long was it before you decided that you'd you'd stay in Australia and not go back home? I I done I reckon I'd done six years in Oz, and I was sort of like you know, do I need to go back to England and prove myself again for some stupid reason? And I went back, <laughs> and I went back, and I was working with Ramsey 
and I was like, what have you done? I was, I had a, a, a bed sit in Kentish town uh, near Camden with Simon Gregory, another great uh, Aussie chef. I actually got him the job of Ramsey's and we, we had a bed sit. The two beds were, were like Bert and Ernie, two beds beside each other. And we were, we were paying the same price as you would for a glamour flat in Bondi. And then we'd get up and just, we'd just work our arse off in the dark again. And I was like, why did you do that? So it was sort of a good kick in the ass to come back again and, and, and just go for broke, you know? Four in hand was really where you um, made a huge name for yourself in Sydney. And then Suckling Pig really featured. You mentioned about that with, at Christmas time as well. How important was that Suckling Pig dish that you were doing at Four in Hand? Well, we like we started. We started with just buying the whole pigs and just breaking them down into like a, sort of an how cool is the assiette of pig? You know, there was all cooked fifteen different ways, and I was sort of like, there's so much manpower. And then I start try to start this thing for chefs and friends, so we could just basically drink after work in my place. And I, I called it the the supper club, and it was basically you invite chefs around. And then um, your favorite friends or whatever, like 12, 10 chefs, and you'd cook a whole suckling pig. And that, and that's where, and I said, well, why is rather than just doing it for chefs, why don't we do it for guests? So then the whole pig and sides came. We started the pig room and it was fully booked. Like that joint, we made so much cash from that idea. Well done, Fasnich. Um, and, and now everyone does it and claims it to be theirs, but it was like, it was it was born from what I said earlier. You go to a function and you have like the most boring meal ever at Christmas. A lot of restaurants will give you absolute crap just to get you in and out, get your dollar, and not care about you. So we were like, how do we how do we make this an experience? And people once the, and if you people think very short term sometimes in hospitality. Like if you make the memories one year, they'll book you the next year, or they'll they'll book Easter, or they'll book their birthday, and the suckling pig. So we had the two hat restaurant, which was all you know nice, and then but I would make the waiters walk the pig through the two hat restaurant to up the stairs to the pig room. They could have easy went round an, e- an easier way, but then the whole room stopped. It was like theater, and the whole room stopped, and they were like, "What? What is that? And why am I eating a salad? Why can't I get that?" And they're like, "Well, you can book it for the next time." That walkthrough would get a booking, which is eight hundred dollars for the pig straight away in the book. It's the power of show, I think. That suckling pig experience just took Sydney by storm. But what does it actually take uh, from go to woe to, to cook a suckling pig like that? Well, it all starts from you've got to find the right pigs and the right supplier. So, you, you know, you, you, we were using our uh, um, Belanda. We were using Redleaf Farm. It, it all came down to them who look after them. And then we would put in our order. So we were going through 25 pigs a week. Um, plus our Asiette pigs, so probably 30, 40 pigs a week. Um, and then we were buying the pigs on a Tuesday a Tuesday for, the say, the Saturday function. So um, they actually had to build a new cool room because we had them over the kegs and everything, keg room for the pub. <laughs> they weren't too happy. So you you got to hang the pigs like four or five days before so the skin goes brown rather than white so that's what's going to give you a glass crackling especially on a on a suckling pig and we would you know we'd be just looking after them all week and then to get them in we to the oven we used to have the oven on 220 or as high as it would go and we'd have to foil the bottom of the oven with tries because we've learned that that pig fat actually catches fire and burns down the ovens we learned that the hard way 
<laughs> so we had sort of a reservoir under the pig, and then the pig was on a on a tray, which was uh, tinfoiled up again. It was all about trying to save the building, actually. And then we 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 would salt water the pig and maybe a little bit of soy sauce sometimes, and rub that on the pig, and that goes in the oven. So the tail had tinfoil on it, the ears had tinfoil, the snout had tinfoil because they sort of burn quickly, and you sort of get it in at an angle. And then you'd oil it and to 220, blast it for about half an hour till you start to get that glass. And then we lowered it down to about 140, 145, just to let the pig cook. And the way we worked out the pig was cooked, you put your hand in the oven. So between the uh, the back leg, not the shoulder, but the back leg, you had to stick your finger into the bone. And if you could move the meat around, it was cooked. So it was sort of a trial by fire for a few a few little fellas. <laughs> <laughs> How did you work out that technique for being cooked? Well, sometimes when you actually take the pig out, start cutting it up and it's raw, and I was like absolutely lose, losing my shit. And we said, we have, we have, before we take it out, because, you know, not every chef would have a thermometer, but they'd lose them. So the finger technique worked quite well. But it's like you're saying, how is it cooked? You're like, like a beef cheek. Well, you know, if you can pull it apart with your fingers, it's cooked. So that, that's sort of where that technique came from, except you had to be in the oven with your finger in there. <laughs> you, you mentioned a porchetta earlier, and that's a, a favourite at Christmas time for many people. Uh, but what, what's the secret to getting that right? Oh, well, see, I've perfected that now. The Italians, the Italians think they own it, but it's actually Colin Fastnacht, the Irish chef who owns it. <laughs> so what I do is I buy the belly, as I said, a few weeks, like a week before, so I get that brown skin, and I might score it really finely. And then when it's time to use the porchetta, I open up the meat. So I'll slice the meat along from one side to the other, but it's still attached. So you're sort of making a big flap, if you understand what I mean. You double the amount of meat. So you open it up. So you, it's like a book. It looks like a book. So one side's the skin and one side's the meat. And then what I do with the stuffing, so my pork stuffing, I blend the breadcrumbs with a heap of herbs, whatever, rosemary. Um, I put some ginger in there, uh, loads of sage. So that the bread, the breadcrumbs are green, and then you fry off your onions, your garlic. You mix that with your breadcrumbs, then you mix that with your stuffing. And then what I do is I line the book with chard leaves, right? So it's a green layer. And then over that, I put my stuffing, and then you roll it so you sort of get a pinwheel. So when you cut it, you've got that beautiful white flesh and then you've got that green green sort of pinwheel stuffing and for me it's all about the stuffing like i put more effort into the pork stuffing so it's sort of and give it a couple of days to sort of mature and sort of mingle and have get together and before you stuff it well take us through the cooking process is there any sort of tips or tricks to get that pork head right well, I stuff it, I tie it, I leave it in the fridge. I might, I might rub it with some uh, salt water, as I said again. And I leave it for a few days. And then I always cook it on a trivet. So you don't want to cook it on the steel of the tray because you're going to overcook the bottom of it. There's no point all that hard work and you overcook it. So a trivet or some vegetables or something like that, um, I usually just I layer potato. And the actual pork fat will sort of comfy the potato underneath it. Um and then the oven, you go high as hard as you can at the start. And and that sort of gives you your crackling. And then low. And that's, that's, that's the, it's not really that secret, but that's it. 
you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned the the Fasnage family Christmas ham and how important that was. Do do you, do you use the the family recipe as a glaze, or do you have a go to glaze that you do? I think every year because myself and Anthony Baharich, when we're when we're doing stuff for delicious, we usually try and come up with a glaze. Like we had a bourbon and Coca-Cola glaze one year. Then we had a, gin- a ginger beer and marmalade glaze. I, and then there was a pineapple. I try and change it up every year. Like you, you sort of need a sweet sort of fruit, a spice and something to give it a bit of a kick. So, I, you know, it changes every year, actually. I think you've got the, a good amount of sugar in there. And obviously ginger really goes really well. Grate some ginger. I, I find if you blend sort of a, like a fresh apple juice or an orange juice or something like that with a ginger and, and, and then, you know, gives it a bit of spice. Mm. Some people like to just carve the ham off the bone and, and not glaze it and, and roast it. But what's the benefits for, for doing the glaze and roasting? I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Fassinger's trick to both, right, in, in one go. Because I'm all about, I'm like the Scottish. We don't like to waste money, right? So what I do is I, I buy my ham on the bone. That's how you know it's Australian. So you buy your ham on the bone with the skin. So I'll buy it so a week before or whatever. You don't want to be buying it on Christmas Eve, right? So you buy it. You take the skin off, right? So I take the skin off. So that's going to go in a pot to make a ham stock, which I will later have pea and, pea and ham soup. Because don't people just throw it in the bin. And that smoky uh, skin is amazing. So then what I do is I cut my ham in three down the bone. So I have one big piece. I take it off the bone. So that's Christmas Day. And then you've usually got two other pieces on the back, which you can take off. And then I'll sort of backpack them and freeze them for later on during the year. Do you know what I mean? Because a lot of people, as much of a showstopper as it is, you roast the whole ham on the bone. But then it's sitting there. And then it might be sitting there two days. And then, you know, health and safety and all that. So... The uh, the the one the big one third of a glaze in the oven, and because it's only me and my wife and my kids, so there's only so much ham you can eat, and then and then that bone I will put in with some veg with the skin, and I will boil it up and make and add split peas, and that's the best, you know, Boxing Day soup is the green split pea and and your ham stock soup. That mate, that is my wife hates it because we eat so much of it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I'm just and then. And then I've got the glazed ham. And then for later in the year, or just backpack and leave it in the fridge. Like just, as you said, just sliced ham and Branston pickle or whatever, or, or a toasty. So you got the best of both worlds. You mentioned how important your family are, uh, particularly on Christmas Day. Do, do you have any stories of, of Fasnidge's feasts that have gone wrong? I've got, I've got a great Christmas story, but it's not involving. It was, I was an apprentice, right? It is. It's all I've got tons of these stories. I was an apprentice and I was sent up to Northern Ireland as my apprenticeship. So you got sent to a hotel. So it's right on the border. It was in Monaghan. And actually, the pub was called the Squealing Pig that we used to go to after work. So in Monaghan, I'm, right? So it was called, and it, it was like the local pub. It was pretty cool. So we got to know the guy because we worked in the hotel up the road. And, mate, we just go hell for leather after work, especially at Christmas. So it was like the night before Christmas Eve, we had a lock-in. So the pub closes at 11, and it's illegal to drink after 11. So we had a lock-in, and then the police turned up. So it's a small country town. The police turned up with the army because, mate, and I'm from Dublin. The army have guns up there. It's a different ballgame. So we ran up to the top of the pub where the cool room was, and we were in the dark, like six of us, like, men and kids and whatever like all like hammered 
and and it was like two in the morning, and I knocked the ham off the top shelf, hit a stock that went everywhere, and then the people were like, "Oh, what the you know." Her door opens, police took us out and said they were going to arrest us, lined us up on the street and said, you can either get arrested or get a slap. And I said, well, I've got to work tomorrow, so I'll take the slap. And then and the, 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 the army were there with guns. And I'm from Dublin going, what is going on? I only wanted a beer. Um, and that's my Christmas ham story of nearly getting arrested <laughs> in Monaghan. You mentioned that you've got lots of uh, Christmas stories. Do you have any more that you can share? Of getting arrested, or <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I think I think Christmas in our in our house was all about you know the whole family just coming together, and and how much cash could you get out of your relatives on Christmas Day, and and I think yeah, what, what a Christmas story! I just I, I think four in hand was obviously an amazing place at Christmas as well because they considered them family, and. And just the, the they ended up usually coming to our house on Christmas Day. So all the Nepalese, all the Italians, the French, the English would all congregate in my house for uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And and we would do a pig on a spit. And that, I think that's probably one of the big takers away of the hospitality industry is we were a lot of them were isolated over here, and we'd end up you know having Christmas at my house. And I think I think that's a big takeaway I get from Christmas and hospitality. A pig on a spit is a real showstopper. Is it, do you have to treat it a bit differently to um, the suckling pig in the oven, for instance? Yeah, yeah, different ball game. It was like when we used to do Taste of Sydney and we do like sixty suckling pigs on a spit. You, what you do is <laughs> you you get your spit and you put all your coals or your wood in, like so you fill it up and then you burn it like two hours before you need it, right? So then, you obviously, you've got your pig on a spit. You bring it to room temperature. So that's sitting on a table. You season it inside and out, tie the legs. And then what you do is you let the coals die down. And then what you do is it's like Moses parting the Red Sea. So you push the, coal, the coals to each end of the spit, but not in the middle. You may have one or two pieces because you want the shoulders and the legs to cook because the middle, as you know, the fillet in the middle and the belly and the, on a suckling pig's got no fat whatsoever. So it's going to cook really quick. So if you want it to stay moist, you let the coals cook the shoulders and the legs out first. And then you can put your coals in at the end and you'll get a perfect suckling pig. Wow. That's true trial and error, that is. Everything's true trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> what are you hoping for this Christmas? Uh, I, I think, as I was saying, I've got... I've got some of my chefs coming back from Nepal who can finally get back in. So I think, and they're going to bring their wives. And I think like that is going to be quite emotional. I think picking those guys up at the airport. We haven't seen them in nearly two years. And we finally got them back and they're bringing their wives. So I think Christmas is all about, I think it's going to be a real family event this year. And obviously there's going to be ham. There's going to be pork. Uh, I bought a huge grill. Remember that rest, uh, Silver Eye? Oh, yeah. Remember, remember the cool place they used to serve twigs and, and bits of trees and whatever, and and, you, and you'd pay a fortune. Remember they were so cool, and now they're bust. Well, guess what, cool kids, your grills in my garden. Um, so I, I bought. That's a lesson to you, yeah. Serve proper food. Um, I bought. Um, I bought their Argentinian grill. We bought actually. We bought all the equipment from the Old Clare Hotel from their restaurant, and we have it in storage to sell if anyone wants it. Um, but I kept I kept the grill, so I put it in my in my garden. Rob Locke is testament to this; he's seen it. 
So it's a wine, it's a wine, it's a wind up grill, and you just put logs underneath it. So that's going to get a good go this Christmas. What sort of impact is the return of all these workers from overseas going to have on the industry? You know, it's just going to save a lot of um, heartache and stress, and it's going to like you don't realise this because I've got friends. I'm not going to say who it is. Friends who've got restaurants down this certain beaches that are busy in the summer and need a lot of staff, a lot of uh, overseas staff to run these things. And at the moment, they're doing it six days a week, like from morning to night. And these people have got young families and kids or whatever, and they're just broken. And there's, they're broken because they've got to pay their rents. They've got to pay their mortgage. And they can't just go, right, we're going to close Monday, Tuesday, because where they are, the rents are huge. So it's affecting like families. It's affecting chefs. Like the people are, are begging people to work. That's how bad it is. Like they're like, and everyone's ringing everyone. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Um. So it's just going to relieve a lot of stress, I think, on a lot of families. And I think after um lockdown, a lot of people worked out that we shouldn't be doing sixteen hours a day or, or twelve hours a day, which we all know you shouldn't. And it's sort people are sort of wanting to do less and work less. So these guys coming back is going to help that happen. Do you know what I mean? Do you think it'll uh, trigger a sort of re- renewed energy and optimism for what's to come? Yeah, because I think everyone's a bit down in the dumps as it's great to be open. And then once we opened, the doors opened, you're like, oh, my God. Like, you look at the roster. <laughs> who's going to do it? Like, who, who's going to actually cook it? And I think all these guys coming back as well. Like, I know for a fact, my, my guy's from Nepal. He was sending me photos from uh, Mount Everest, from the bottom. That's where his house was. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, how amazing is that? He's like, no, nah, mate, I just want to come back and cook. But all his, he got back in touch with all his Nepalese family and his cooking. And I was looking at his cooking going, mate, when you come back, I'm going to do a Nepalese night. Wow. <laughs> Irish, Irish <laughs> Nepalese. <laughs> You'd make a fascinating Santa in a movie. Um, if, if you were to play Santa, what, what are the three things you would give food people for Christmas? Uh, what would I give them? What would I give them? You'd, I would give them an, like an Irish whiskey, like a, a slain Irish whiskey. <laughs> I would give them, I would give them, oh, do you know what I'd buy them? A pillow, a nice pillow. That that's what I've realised as I'm getting old when I've got chef's neck and back and probably uh, a voucher for a chiropractor. That's what I would give him. Because that's where my body is now after all those years. And every chef I'm, I'm talking to now is like, my, my legs and my feet. Or a good pair of shoes, runners. That's that's what's the problem, our feet. It's been a difficult period of time, but you've always been a, a glass half full sort of person. What are you hoping for in 2022? Uh, I'm hoping for um, that now that the diners have realised like what a loss hospitality was because we were out for so long and there's only so much frozen lasagnas you can buy off us uh, um, for your takeaway meals, that when you go out now, that it's actually, do you know what? It's an experience. It's actually people's livelihood. They're not actors or, you know, the waiters are not actors just filling in their job. A lot of them, that's their job. Like I went to a Marais, the other day in the casino, Alex Pavoni's place. And I haven't been out in a while, so we went, I just saw, brought, my wife organised, we brought the kids. Mate, I was sitting there and the service and the hospitality, I was, I've been there before, but just because I've missed it for a year, I was like, how good is 
the service we've got, like in Australia. And people don't realize that. Sometimes you just think the waiter's the waiter. I'm like, mate, look, they're making the past at the table. Like they know your name. They know what you had before. Like that's, I think hospitality, that's that's what we're going to get back again because we all want to cook. The waiters want to serve. They want to give hospitality and I think people want it. So I think hopefully that all connects again and it's not just somewhere you go for food and you don't embrace it, you know. For someone who's really good at feeding a lot of people well, do you have any tips for, for the chefs that are cooking on Christmas Day to survive the day? <laughs> don't go out Christmas Eve. <laughs> I've learned that lesson the hard way. I would, um, I would say in most chefs, if you're going to be working Christmas Day, the venue will, will have a Christmas dinner for the staff. And I think that's like even as hard, like Christmas Day, it is what it is, whatever. But I mean, to sit down with your, your peers or, or your, you know, your friends and people you, you work with all week, all year, to have Christmas dinner, I think is quite special. So I would I I think that's the way to go, and uh, yeah, you're a familiar face on TV these days in Australia. When can we expect to see you back on the screen? Oh, I'll tell you a funny story. Right, <laughs> I got asked to do. I've done. I'm doing a few things at the moment. We had a heap of shows last year. Like it was a travel show. I was going to do. Well, that didn't go very well, did it? Uh, <laughs> So next next year's a, a, a new, as I said, glass half full. There's a few things going to happen, but I got I got asked to do celebrity letters and numbers, right? <laughs> right. So like totally off brand. It's like it's the first ever show I've ever done that has no cooking whatsoever. So it's obviously my wish. So I I, I watched nine out of ten cats religiously on English TV, and you've got a captain and the guy, and you go on. So you've got a team captain, and you go on. You do your letters and numbers. So obviously, coming from a guy who's not very good at spelling or mathematics, I said I'll rely, I'll rely on the captain. So I turn up to the studio, and as I walk in, I said, "Oh, so who's my captain?" They're like, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Nine out of ten. They said, "No, mate, you're on your own." I said, "What do you mean? I'm, I'm on my own?" They're like, "You're on this desk on your own, so you've got to do all the spelling and the thing." I'm like. And I physically like I don't I don't panic I I nearly vomited and I had that you know the, and I rang my I rang my missus and I was like Jane like I've I've effed up royally on this one because like this I've I've walked into it I can't get they're like man you can't leave and I was like I'm the wrong man but like I'm gonna look like an idiot but anyway I found a few ways to cheat and uh, <laughs> I, I did and I actually got I, I won't say because it's aired in the next few weeks I actually did quite well and. Uh, they asked me back. So how about that? I'm di- I did a show with no actual food. <laughs> well, um, we're fast approaching Christmas. Uh, how, how are you going to celebrate this year? Do you know what you're cooking yet? Uh, well, I'm going to use the grill, as I this said grill. So I, I was thinking about maybe, like, I would might get a pork neck and just butterfly it. So you open it up a bit and then have it mar- marinated because pork neck's an amazing piece of meat. And it, it's not going to break the bank either. And I, I would butterfly that and sort of and have it marinated a couple of days before. And then I was thinking about having some pineapples and some strings. Don't laugh. This is serious. <laughs> some some pineapples, like peels, on some strings hanging from the grill. So they'll slowly roast. And then I'll have that with the pork neck. I'm obviously going to have my glazed ham um, and salads. Just keep it nice and light. And hopefully not a raincoat the way the weather's going this year. <laughs> 
Well, it sounds bloody amazing, mate, and it's an absolute pleasure to always catch up with you. Have a bloody great Christmas, mate, and um, hopefully we'll catch up for a beer soon. Hopefully, and, and happy Christmas to everyone and, and New Year, and let's go into the next year positive, and it's not going to be last year. Enjoy. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstart. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.